the modern software supply chain contains many different points of distribution. JavaScript frameworks, NPM modules, Docker containers, open source repositories, cloud providers, on-prem firmware, IoT, networking proxies, and so much more. With so much attack surface, securing a large enterprise is an uphill battle. Jeff Williams is the CTO at Contrast Security, a company that makes infrastructure monitoring tools. Contrast Security works by intercepting network traffic at a low level and assessing whether that traffic maps to a common threat model. Jeff joins the show to talk about different approaches to monitoring and securing large infrastructure deployments. The Find Collabs podcast is out. This is a new podcast that I started to talk about the community within the new company that I'm building, which is called Find Collabs. You can go to findcollabs.com to see that product. And we're also hiring a React developer. The details for all of these Find Collabs facts are in the show notes for this episode. We are booking sponsorships for Q3 for Software Engineering Daily. If you are looking to reach 30,000 plus developers, you can find more details at softwareengineeringdaily.com slash sponsor. And there's some other links in the show notes to updates in our ecosystem. With that, let's get on with today's episode. Jeff Williams, you are the CTO at Contrast Security. Welcome to Software Engineering Daily. Hi, Jeff. I'd like to start on the topic of the software supply chain. Describe the modern software supply chain as you see it. Wow, that's a great question. It's really complicated. You know, the simple way of thinking about it is, you know, folks are building some of their own custom code, and then they're also getting some open source libraries. And that, that's, you know, the whole supply, that's, what, that's the ingredients that go into an application. But if you double click into those things, they get really complicated. On the open source side, you've got to look at, you know, each open source library has a bunch of dependencies and they have dependencies and, you know, that goes on down for many levels. And then, and there's some complexities there because they might be old versions of those dependencies. And there's some complexity there because, you know, then you got to start looking at, well, you know, what's the pedigree of the code that's coming through those channels? You know, who built it? How did they build it? How did they test it? What tools did they use to test it? You can even think about, you know, are are those components possibly Trojaned in some way? I wrote a paper on this at Black Hat a few years ago, and we can get into it if you want, but it's really pretty easy to backdoor software. And so, you know, then you got to start looking at the tools that they use to develop that code. Like, you know, what environment did they build it in? Some laptop with some random downloaded tools? And are they also playing flash games at night on that same laptop? And I don't know, there's just like, there's a million aspects to the integrity of that supply chain and none of it's very good. There's also the same thing on the custom code side because, I don't know, people build code on their laptops, even for big companies. They build it on laptops that they use for other things that could easily easily be compromised. And so how does that affect the trustworthiness of the code that comes out of it? Uh, you can even look at build tools like Jenkins and so on and imagine like, well, what if they, you know, the code was clean, but some point during the compile process, somebody was able to slip in some some Trojan code. You know, one of the things that I did was I, I thought, hey, what if somebody committed a malicious test case? Nobody looks at the test cases, but those test cases run on the machine that's building the code. So, you know, could it 
Trojan the actual binary? Sure. As you're looking at this distressing array of issues in the supply chain, you know, you, you founded a company, so, you know, you can focus on any of these different areas, or you can focus on all of them. I think you're you're probably more in the direction of the latter. But if you were to pick some particularly bad, particularly acute pain points, some particular vulnerabilities in that software supply chain that concern you the most, what would those vulnerabilities be? Yeah. So probably the biggest thing is the most obvious, is don't use components that we already know have vulnerabilities in them. So there's a bunch of them, you know. People, uh, researchers out there do great research and they find vulnerabilities and uh, we publish them as CVEs. And we know about those. So the simplest thing you can do is just not use ones that have known vulnerabilities in them. The problem is we're probably really only scratching the surface because, you know, all this research is done by volunteers. There's no organized teams that are out uh, swarming on open source libraries. So, you know, that's a real challenge for folks. But I do want to to zoom out a little bit and say that, you know, those open source vulnerabilities are important, but they're just one piece of the puzzle. Most vulnerabilities are in the custom code of applications. So it's something like, you know, 70 or 80 percent of the vulnerabilities in a given application are going to be in the custom code. And that's a really important piece of your overall vulnerability picture to consider. Now, if you're talking about that custom code, that code is closed source. How do attackers find vulnerabilities in that custom code? <laughs> yeah, so they're really creative about this. And that's why we see so many spectacular hacks that happen. I spent many years as a penetration tester doing this kind of work. And really, you take what you know about the application and you start exploring it and testing it and poking it and prodding it. And pretty soon something weird will happen. And then you poke and prod it some more and you isolate what's going wrong and you can sort of reverse engineer these vulnerabilities by attacking them. For open source, it's a lot easier. You know, I'm a big fan of manual code review. And so, you know, for for things where you've got the code, that's great. You can just analyze it and look at it that way. When I think about your background as as a penetration tester, it makes me think about what contrast security does, which to my mind is you've got, you kind of put an agent on the different areas of a software stack. And it seems like that agent is doing pen testing at those different layers. Is, is it a fair way to describe your company? It's a little bit like that. We use the knowledge from all the pen testing in the product, but Basically, what we're doing is passively observing the application as it runs. So whereas the pen tester is poking and prodding at it, what we do is much more like what a new Relic or AppDynamics does for performance. We sit back and we watch. We observe data as it flows through the application. And, you know, let's let's take a SQL injection example. If we see some untrusted data flow in and make its way through the application and get into a SQL query, without being escaped or parameterized in some way that would have stopped SQL injection. We know that we found an exploitable path through the application, and then we report that as a vulnerability. So it's a little bit like pen testing, but it's you know fully automated and sort of passive. Let's go deeper on the SQL injection example. Describe sure. how a SQL injection vulnerability is commonly exploited. 
Yeah. So the you know, first thing you have to understand is how SQL injection works. And it's relatively simple. If you take untrusted data from a HTTP parameter, a cookie, or a header or something, and put it into a SQL query by concatenating it into the query itself, you give the attacker the opportunity to change the meaning of that query. So if they, you know, for instance, if your data is landing inside a quoted string, the attacker could send a close quote and then add on some commands. Sometimes you can chain commands, which uh, would allow them to sort of take over the database. Sometimes you have to work within the syntax of the query itself to steal data and so on. So to exploit them, attackers have to figure out, you know, sort of where are they landing in the SQL query? And then what's the right syntax in order to take over the query and make it do your own bidding? The lifecycle of that SQL query malicious injection spans from the user's browser to the application layer on the back end. Maybe it's some kind of microservice. Maybe it's handed off to another microservice. Then it's eventually handed off to perhaps some JDBC driver, and then the JDBC yep. driver hands it off to the actual database where the SQL will actually inject. In that trace of different areas that you could detect or perhaps intercept that SQL injection, where is the best insertion point for your monitoring tool? Yeah, so you've latched onto the key problem is it's you can't really detect SQL injection that well if you're only looking at a piece of that trace. So the most complicated part of the data flow is in the actual custom code itself. So as the data flows in from an untrusted source and then winds its way through the code and makes it to a SQL query that gets sent to the database. So that's really where most of the you know, most flows don't end up in SQL queries. So you, you can't just say oh, every untrusted input is a SQL injection. You got to find the ones that actually make it into a SQL query. So I think the best place to do that is inside the web application or web API itself. Now, you mentioned the, the case of, you know, sort of microservices where they're all threaded together. And generally, my advice is to make sure that all your microservices are independently protected against SQL injection, because you never know how they're going to be structured or deployed in the future. You never know which ones are going to be publicly accessible and so on. So you don't want to count on service A defending against SQL injection for for service B. Now, you, you want to be able to scan the traffic at different areas of the stack. What does that actually entail? Like in, in an implementation sense, if I want to, you know, integrate with your security solution and I wanted to scan all my traffic and find vulnerabilities, but I don't want to have to spend a bunch of time integrating with this solution, I just want some sort of like seamless integration thing and I don't want it to lower my performance, what's the, I guess, you know, at the different areas of the stack, how do you accommodate that problem? Yeah, so... I'm trying to rid the world of the concept of scanning. It's almost always not the right way to find security vulnerabilities because scanning, necess- I mean, by definition, it means you're kind of working from the outside and trying to reverse engineer what's going on inside. And it's really difficult. That's why pen testing is so hard. So to me, the right thing to do is to get inside the running application and monitor it continuously from within. So 
the way that contrast deploys, I'll give you a Java example, but it works the same for .NET and Node and Ruby and Python and .NET Core and things like that. You take our agent, which is just a jar file, and you add it to the way that you launch the Java command. So you add the Java agent flag, and then you just run your application as normal. And as the application starts up, Contrast will instrument it with what I'll call you know like micro sensors. They're really just tiny bits of code that take a snapshot of security relevant behavior as the application runs. And so then as you use your application, as you do your normal development, you do your normal QA, your normal deployment, Contrast is there in the background, turning all of your normal QA activity into security testing. The adoption of things like containers and cloud infrastructure is uneven across the industry. And, you know, the deployment models and the maturity of different enterprises in their migration, perhaps from a a monolithic architecture in one language to a microservices architecture in a variety of languages, that is uneven. So I think about the the problem you're solving, you're trying to solve, you have solved to some extent, as this really big end-by-end matrix of different areas where you need to assess application security. How do you approach that problem without just like getting overwhelmed by the scope of the different, you know, areas of the of the kind of software runtime fabric that you want yeah. to to integrate with? Yeah. Well, one thing that we do is we focus pretty exclusively on the application layer. So we don't actually care where you deploy your application. You could deploy in containers or cloud or elastic environments or even, you know, in an internal data center. For us, you know, the kind of security that goes on in the infrastructure layer is very different than the kind of security that goes on at the application layer. You know, the the infrastructure is all built with the same kind of stuff and predominantly to secure it, you're hardening and patching and firewalling and stuff like that. But at the application layer, security is really different. You know, every application is this beautiful and unique snowflake that's got all this custom code and it works differently from everything else. And so, you know, we focus on that problem. And, you know, you still do need to secure the rest of the, the fabric, but what we're focused on is, you know, really just the workloads, just that business logic piece. That simplifies it dramatically. Let's go deeper into that application layer. What exactly are you doing at that application layer that you're focused on? Yeah, so traditionally, folks use tools like static analysis and dynamic analysis to find vulnerabilities in applications. They used web application firewalls to try to prevent them from being attacked. And, you know, those technologies came out in the early 2000s. They really haven't evolved to keep up with modern software, and they don't work very well. They're super inaccurate. And so what we do is we're taking advantage of all the contextual information that we can get from inside the running application. Things like the code itself and the HTTP traffic and the data flow and control flow and all the libraries and how they're used and all the configuration and the backend connections. We can see all of that kind of information and use it to very accurately identify vulnerabilities. And we do it in real time. So we can give this sort of super 
accurate feedback to developers as they code so that they can fix things as you know part of their normal work, the way they normally fix other kinds of issues that are in their software. Tell me more about the actual implementation of it. Yeah. So we figured out ways to instrument you know all those languages and platforms that I that I talked about. And then on top of that, what we do is we've essentially translated the different kinds of vulnerabilities that exist in AppSec, things like SQL injection, but also things like command injection and CSRF and XSS and XXE and expression language injection and unsafety shellers objects and, and so on. We translated each of those into a series of calls. We call it a rule, but essentially it's like, what is the behavior of the application that causes that vulnerability to exist? So for SQL, it means untrusted data flowed into a query without being parameterized or escaped. For something like XXE, it means you parsed an XML document and processed the doc type header. You didn't disable doc type processing and, and so on. And then what we do is we put sensors into the application that allow us to see whether that behavior is happening. So we get a series of events from our sensors all within the agent, our, our agent, the contrast agent. And when we see a pattern that represents a vulnerability, we immediately report that to the you know, to our team server and, and alert the folks that need to know about it through the tools they're already using. I see a couple areas of engineering we could dive into here. There's the agent that you've implemented, you've built, and there's the sensor. Can you go a little bit deeper into each of those? Yeah. So... The agent is just our way of instrumenting the application, and it also has a, a rule engine that processes you know, the events to see if there's been a violation of our rules. The sensors themselves are really just callbacks. They're code that we insert into the, the methods of the application, into security-relevant methods of the application that just give us some visibility into what's going on there. Basically, we snapshot the parameters to the method, some of the state and the return, as well as the stack trace at, at each event. So that then if we notice a violation, you know, we don't we don't really report the violation until the end of the trace. Like, you know, data flows through, it bounces around, we get a whole bunch of events. Eventually it makes it into that SQL query. And then we go back and we verify the trace. We say, hey, did this trace have the, the proper validation or escaping? If it did, then we just throw it away. There was no violation there. We don't have anything to report. But if there was a violation, that's when we turn it into a report that we send up to the team server as a vulnerability. And so the, this sensor, explain what a software sensor is in your context. Yeah. You know, imagine if you're instrumenting an application with log messages. That's like a really simple way of instrumenting the app. And what you're doing is you're actually weaving those logging calls into methods that you care about. Well, contrast is a little bit like that, except for instead of a log message, we're actually weaving in the code that just takes a snapshot of what's going on in that method and reporting it to us as opposed to putting it in a log file. And does the sensor read like JVM bytecode or or just like whatever runtime environment is go or like you know if you're running Ruby code you've got like these C struct sitting in memory so like how how are you yeah. how are you reading this this runtime? 
So we're actually weaving these sensors into the code of the application. So as the binary code of the application moves from disk into memory, we hook that and add in our callbacks, our sensors into that code so that it ends up looking like the developer put that code in originally, but we're just weaving it in at runtime. And I assume it's it's just it's, it's pretty lightweight weaving in of code. It's not going to really impact performance in a measurable way. In development, there's a little bit of a performance. We're doing quite a bit of work. You know, full data flow analysis is complex. We put a lot of work into performance. So, you know, typically we add about five milliseconds to a round trip request in development. But one thing we haven't really talked about is, you know, contrast also protects applications in production. So using the same technique, we can also identify real attacks on applications. And when we see an attack, we prevent it from exploiting the application. That's called RASP or runtime application self-protection. And that is much faster. There we add about 50 microseconds to a round trip request. So about, you know, a 20th of a millisecond. That's about 20 to 40 times faster than a typical WAF because we're doing it right within the code and not taking an extra hop and not doing a whole bunch of extra parsing and stuff. Just so we convey the architecture again to people who who missed it here, let's go through an example. So give me an example of a vulnerability. It gets detected by your code weaving sensor and the agent gets notified and the agent manages to propagate the correct commands in order to stop that. That's so complicated. So tell me, like, just give me the end to end there. Yeah. I don't know if, I guess maybe I'm used to it, but it really, it's not that complicated once you get used to it a little bit, any more than like doing performance monitoring is complicated. It's really essentially the same thing, right? We're just doing it for security instead of performance. But let's zoom out real quick for just a second. Like, so imagine you're a software development project and you've got, I don't know, a dozen developers working in various environments, dev, and you got a pipeline with some CD servers, some test servers, and you push into production. So the way you would deploy contrast is you take our agent and add it to your development machines because they're going to be running the application locally. You'd add it maybe to your CI CD server and your QA server because you want security testing there as well. And then you can also put it in your production servers set to be in protect mode. And then you just, after that, like that doesn't take very long. It takes like 30 seconds to add the agent to an application. And from that point forward, all you do is your normal development process. You just write code, you test it locally, you push to your GitHub or whatever, you build, do automated builds, all that just works normally. Contrast is always in the background using this instrumentation-based technique to just identify if your code steps out of line. If it has any behaviors that represent a vulnerability, Contrast will identify it. And then what Contrast does is it sends all those vulnerabilities to our central team server. That's either SaaS or on-premise. And that team server then is able to notify the people that need to know about that vulnerability through whatever mechanisms you set up. We've got a ton of integrations into tools like IDEs, like Eclipse and Idea and Visual Studio. We integrate into Slack, Jira, GitHub issues, a bunch of Azure tools, tools like Jenkins and other CI/CD servers, and even into 
sim systems like Splunk and ArcSight and so on. So we're really trying to give you great visibility into application security across you know the whole life cycle. But when it really shines is if you're a big enterprise with hundreds or thousands of applications. And now instead of having to go scan each one of them individually and get an expert team involved, slowing down your pipeline and generating tons of false positives and causing you know everyone to hate security. Instead, now all your applications are sort of testing themselves in parallel. All the results are coming together in your dashboard so you can see exactly what security you have across your whole enterprise all at once. Can you describe the communication protocol between the sensor and the agent in a little more detail? Yeah. So the the sensor to agent is all within the application space itself. So the sensor simply makes a call back into the agent code. So that's all local within the running application. And you need that because you want that to be super high performance. Now the agent connects back to the team server to report, you know, just reports vulnerabilities and things about libraries and things about attacks and things like that. But that is just a REST API. It's you know mutually authenticated SSL REST API outbound connection. So, so if you detect something, how do you prevent it? And maybe maybe I, maybe I missed this. Like where where are oh, you yeah. like? halting a command from executing? Right. So a web application firewall would just look at the HTTP request and say, oh, I think that's an attack, so I'm going to stop it. The problem with that, though, is that you never really know if it's an attack or not just by looking at the HTTP request. Many JSON requests and XML documents kind of look like attacks, and so WAFs overblock and underblock and make tons of mistakes. Contrast works differently, right? So we can actually see that data come into the application. We can watch where it goes. Imagine an attack, like someone put in, you know, single tick or one equals one into a web form. And that data flows through the application and makes it into a SQL query, changing the meaning of that SQL query. Then Contrast can intervene and say, hey, we're going to not send that query to the database, we're going to throw an exception and jump around that code so that the attack is defused. So you just throw just whatever, IO exception or, you know, error, like yeah. virus virus injection exception or something. Well, we want it to look like a normal SQL injection, because a normal SQL exception, <laughs> because mm. uh, we want the application to be able to recover, right? If there was a transaction in process or something, you might want to roll that back. So we have this, you know, our Hippocratic oath is never break an app. Right. Okay. So you can just throw a general exception and that'll, that through the inheritance hierarchy, you'll get the right exception. That's right. Ah, That's right. Very interesting. So one thing I I have seen in conversations with different companies about enterprises is that enterprises have this IT sprawl where oftentimes they have so much infrastructure that they cannot even like find all of it or they don't know where all of it is. So if you're yeah. if you're integrating with a company, how do you find all of their infrastructure in order to get it instrumented. Yeah, that's a tricky problem. And there are some companies out there that that focus on that. We'll call it the inventory problem. And, you know, I would say you can't really secure anything that you can't get your hands around, right? Like the first step is to know what you have to secure. We try to make that easier a couple of ways. You know, one is we 
try to make it really easy to make contrast part of your default install. So we've got fantastic integrations with a bunch of different cloud environments, like Pivotal, for instance. We've got a great tile, and a lot of enterprises use our contrast Pivotal tile to just make that part of their standard deployment. So whenever they deploy something, Contrast goes with it. And then when the application starts up, Contrast will connect back to its team server and start sending vulnerability data and preventing attacks and and doing all its work. So I think that's one way to try to get a, a handle on all your applications. But you could be running, you know, there could be some web app running under some desk somewhere that we're not gonna know about. And solutions there, you know, you can do things like network monitoring to see if there's web traffic going around. You can do other kinds of scans to try to flush that stuff out. But, you know, we kind of, we're kind of like step two. Like once you find it, then you want to bring it in and make it part of the ecosystem so that you're tracking it and protecting it forever. The amount of vulnerabilities in the world is quite numerous. I, I think about the Apache Struts vulnerability that managed to leak everyone's Equifax data. Yeah. In an ideal world, you would be able to have insight into all the nuances of all the software that is running across an organization and an up-to-date understanding of the vulnerabilities in those respective pieces of software from SSL to Apache Struts, basically. That seems kind of hard to do, What's your strategy for maintaining an up-to-date, I guess, compendium of, of, of vulnerabilities and, and then rolling out that correct yeah. instrumentation to your agent and your sensors? Yeah, so you're right. You can't chase CVEs because there's, you know, there's half a dozen every week of new CVEs that someone needs to get worried about. So contrast strategy is to fundamentally prevent whole classes of vulnerabilities from being exploited. So that that Equifax breach was an expression language injection problem. Basically, they're double evaluating an expression using user input. And so the attacker could use that to send in an expression that contained native code, you know, runtime.exec command. So what Contrast does there is instead of trying to, you know, have a a signature and a patch for that particular CVE. And then, you know, over the course of the next year, there were, I don't know, about a dozen different expression language problems in Struts and Spring. And instead of trying to issue a signature and a patch for each of those, Contrast sort of fundamentally prevents expressions from being used as exploits. So we detect the vulnerabilities, we can report them to you, but we also prevent them from being exploited. A little bit like the way that, you know how DEP and ASLR work to prevent buffer overflows? They ruled out whole classes of attacks. I do not, I do not know, I do not know that. Gotcha, so those are are technologies that are built into modern C and C++ compilers to prevent DEP stands for data execution prevention, and ASLR stands for address space randomization layout. And the idea here is that, you know, even if an attacker can find uh, improper use of, you know, gets or format string or something, that they won't be able to get their attack to be executable on the stack or heap. So we do something similar but for a number of different kinds of attacks. So we've got essentially a sandbox around the SQL execution engine that prevents it from being used for malicious purposes. The expression language prevention, for instance, says, hey, 
will detect attempts to exploit expressions. And even if one sneaks through, we're going to prevent things like creating sockets and writing to files and doing system commands while you're evaluating an expression. Because that's not something that people need to do. So it's a really powerful way of diffusing whole classes of attacks. That way, we can address, you know, thousands of vulnerabilities all with one cap- with one technique. But we do provide rule updates pretty frequently. You know, we're about 160 people now will be uh, 250 by the end of the year. And we're all working really hard to cover all of those different environments and make sure that we've got an expansive rule set across all of those different platforms. This is a newer framing of security to me, this idea of the different classes of security problems, I guess, at the code level or at the the syntactical level. But it makes a little bit of sense to me because what you described with the way that you instrument the code with sensors, you take the code in its... Uh, what is it? I guess it's like in, in its machine language code or after it's been, is it like usually when it's compiled to C code or usually when it's in like, it's pre-assembly, right? For Java and .NET, it's bytecode. For bytecode, yeah. Ruby and Python, it's, you know, just uh, straight scripts. So it's, you know, whatever the different platform is, but oh, really? it works the, okay. roughly the same way in each of those environments. Oh, really? Okay. So you, you instrument like actual Ruby code or actual Python code. Yep. Okay. As it loads, we've hooked the, the class loading process again, and we instrument it as it loads, yeah. Interesting. So there, so there is some way in each of these languages to kind of understand what are the risky security anti-patterns that people have implemented in each respective language. That's right. And, you know, ideally, someday we switch from, you know, just enforcing anti-patterns to actually enforcing positive rules, you know, patterns, (laughs) because it would be easier to actually have a rule that says, you know, always use a parameterized query and, you know, follow these certain coding guidelines. We can enforce that kind of rule too, but out of the box, we, we come with a bunch of negative rules because that's, you know, people require that flexibility. That's a pretty cool aspiration because then you could put that into your CI/CD pipeline and then you you know you push your code and then it's like okay your code passes all the tests but you get a yellow here like you know you you've got a little vulnerability here and yeah we've got it instrumented with the sensor but if you want to like kind of address this all together we can just you know we can just make that's a, right. a, a, it's, a it's GitHub re- that's issue. really for an organization that's gotten past the flood of <laughs> right. vulnerabilities because you know right now they don't want to see the yellows because they're dealing with a pile of reds. Right. But what we've seen is really interesting. Even large organizations, like I'll give you an example of one very large technology company. They put contrast into a division of 5,600 developers uh, across 1,200 apps, and. It took us about a year to get deployed across all of those applications, which is blazingly fast for security. (laughs) And within about six months of starting to use Contrast, most of those projects had worked off their backlog, and it was a very large backlog. And they got to a state that I call the new normal, which is essentially they've they've worked off their library vulnerabilities, they've worked off their, their custom code vulnerabilities, and they get to this place where they're basically clean. And... Every once in a while, they'd introduce a new vulnerability, and then they'd fix it right away, and they'd get back to clean. And that's how security should work. But if you look at what we've been able to do over the last 20 years, it's it's really disappointing. You know, I wrote the first version of the OWASP Top 10 in 2002, and it's still basically the same stuff in there. 
I think we've learned that we're not going to be able to hack our way out of this. We're not going to train our way out. We're not going to static analysis our way out of this. We're not going to maturity model our way out of this. But I really do think that we can instrument our way out of this. We can make dramatic changes in the way that people handle their application security at enterprise scale with instrumentation. That example of an organization with, what did you say, 5,800 developers across 12 geos? Yeah, 5,600 developers across 1,200 apps. Okay, sorry, 5,600 developers across 1,200 apps that actually managed to get a lot of their security issues ironed out and get to a, quote, new normal, as you said. That's a pretty appealing aspiration for a lot of companies. How realistic is that? Was there something about that organization that was like, okay, these are uniquely good developers, this is a uniquely clean organization, maybe they were only started like five years ago or eight years ago or something like that? You know, how, how realistic is it for an organization? Like I'm thinking of like, I don't know, I always think of like, you know, a hundred-year-old bank or a hundred-year-old yeah. insurance company, like can they have that kind of thing? Yeah, they can. What This organization was pretty standardized in terms of their infrastructure, so that made it really easy to deploy contrast quickly because we made it part of their standard environments and they just pushed it out. And so we got spread very quickly. We do run into a lot of organizations that, you know, they've got all kinds of different platforms running in all kinds of different environments. And there it's a little bit more work to get the contrast agent deployed into each of those projects because it's, you know, it's a little bit different every time. But it's way easier than trying to scan because the, all the contrast work is kind of upfront. Like it's get the agent out there, get it working, get the data flowing, and then everything else is kind of automatic. With scanning, you know, to do it right, you've got to run SAST and DAST and a software composition analysis tool. And you have to do that every time you change the code. So the faster you move, the faster, you know, the more scans you have to run. And the work just keeps piling up and piling up because every one of those scan reports has a ton of false positive. It's got to be deduplicated and triaged. You got to map the, the findings to the right person to go fix the code. And it's, it, all that takes time. And so you don't get your vulnerabilities back immediately. You get them back like, you know, weeks or months after you made the mistake. And so there's just, it just doesn't encourage learning. So we think giving instant feedback with you know, accuracy and you know, right through the tools that people are already using is how developers want to work. And so we've seen really, you know, developers really like this approach to security. This show covers elements of business as well as software engineering. We also cover some management issues. And you are pretty advanced in the, in the state of the company and... We have not covered company development of a security company with anybody who has gone from the introductory startup stage of a security company to yeah. your point. You've raised $119 million, at least for what I know. Yeah, the latest is a Series D. I'd love to know how the engineering strategy has changed throughout the stages of company maturity and stages of funding. Yeah. We've obviously grown a lot. You know, we, we started with just a handful of people in uh, my co-founder's mom's attic, and we made a really good hire earlier. Our, our our VP of engineering is a guy named Steve Feldman, who was the VP of engineering at Blackboard, and he was one of the early employees there and grew that to you know be a massive DevOps shop. 
And he was great. When he joined us, he started putting in uh, DevOps practices. He didn't just run in and try and change everything. He started introducing practices. You know, so, so we sort of got organized around two-week sprints at first. And then over time, we accelerated that. Now we're at like, you know, seven or 10 deploys a day. He introduced things like show and tell. And, you know, we got really serious about tracking things in GitHub. I think one of the major evolutions was when we broke out into teams for each of the agents and our team server. You know, sort of structurally, then we've, we had to build, you know, a management structure around each of those teams. And, you know, that's we're still growing really fast. So that's continuing to evolve. But, you know, we've been DevOps from the beginning. We really focus on trying to automate all our testing and our whole pipeline. And so maybe that gives you a sense of how we work. When did you stop coding? Oh, that's a great question. <laughs> I did a lot of the work on the early product, building the agent and figuring out how to do instrumentation for this, along with my co-founder, Arshan Debirziaghi. And so, you know, up through the Series B, maybe I was pretty involved with coding and, you know, adding features to the agent. But I've always been sort of an agent guy. There's, there's quite a lot of work in our, our team server as well, but I haven't done any of that. I did jump in over uh, Christmas a year ago. I helped to work on a version two of our our RASP engine. We call it RAP or Runtime Exploit Prevention. And that's where I was getting into some of the different layers of protection that we can weave into the application. So we really went from just a basic RASP to you know, sort of RASPNG or, or what we call REP, which is not trying to block attacks, but really trying to prevent the exploitation of whole classes of attack. So I got to do some coding there and that was great. I really enjoy it. I miss it a lot, but a lot of my life now is, you know, sort of evangelizing and meeting with customers and partners and so on. For a lot of entrepreneurial software engineers out there listening, they might not really consider security as an area that they can start a business in. To my mind, when I think of security sell, like selling a, a security software product, I just imagine myself having to get up and like put on a suit and tie and like go into an like an office somewhere and and it's like sales sales of security. I mean, sales in software is hard enough or complicated enough. Like, I really want some kind of self service thing. I want to avoid the sales model altogether. What was your approach to closing the first sale? And would you? I mean, would you caution software engineers against starting a security company where you really have to sell into these kinds of enterprises? I would strongly recommend against it. It's really hard. But maybe that's just from where I'm sitting now. So this is interesting, I think, because a lot of startups start selling to small businesses and then, you know, they, they try to move into the enterprise space. We did that the other way around because... We started working on contrast at my consulting company, Aspect Security, and we spent several years there working on contrast. And our customers' aspect were all very large financial institutions like the Federal Reserve and you know City and J.P. Morgan and so on. And so our first place, the easy place for us to go, was to talk to these giant customers. So we got very early feedback on the enterprise features that we need. So we had to add a whole bunch of stuff really early, like access control and logging. And, you know, we had to get SOC 2 type 2 compliance really early. And so we did all this really hard stuff early. And that actually ended up paying off later. But it was that was tough. 
because you know they wouldn't buy anything before we had all that stuff. You brought in an external CEO. That is something that you know it was kind of I guess not not a shibboleth, but you know so people didn't do that, or, or I think entrepreneurs don't don't think of doing that usually. I mean, there are some amazing historic exceptions to that to that rule, like the Eric Schmidt example. The HashiCorp team has brought in an external CEO. It's going really well there. When did you bring in an external CEO and why? Yeah, so I was CEO of my consulting company. And, you know, we were decent sized. We grew to about 60 people. It eventually sold to Ernst & Young a few years ago. So, you know, that was, uh, I had some CEO experience. And I looked at this and I, I well, I was a little arrogant. I mean, I really thought that this technology had a, a lot of promise. And so I thought, you know what? I've never, I don't know anything about building a product company. I know how to build a consulting company. And I think you got to look at yourself and say, you know, do you really have the skills to do this job? And when I look at, uh, you know, the job of the venture-backed technology company is, you know, it's fundraising, it's working on M&A stuff, it's, you know, dealing with investors and partners. And, you know, I looked at that and I just said, you know what, I've never done any of that stuff before. I'm going to find somebody who really knows how to do that. And I'm going to stick to what I'm really good at, which is security and software. And I'll take the CTO role. I was very happy to do that. And I think that was the right thing for my company. What stage was it? What what funding stage or what maturity in the company? Yeah, so, you know, we did kind of an angel round when it was still at Aspect, but our A round was when we brought in our first CEO. Mm. And, you know, it turns out, unfortunately, that, you know, there's the job of building a company from sort of, you know, zero to 10 or 20 million in revenue is a little different than building it from, you know, 20 to 100. And so you may find yourself switching CEOs. And we did that at our, our B round. And again, that was a great choice. We brought in Alan Newman, who's our current CEO, and he's been absolutely fantastic. And he really is, you know, helping us grow to that next level. I heard a great quote this morning, actually. I was listening to the 20 Minute VC, which is a favorite podcast of mine. And one of the guests was the CEO of Carta. And he was talking about why executives sometimes churn out pretty quickly. And this quote I really like is people often grow linearly. But companies grow super linearly, like like exponentially. Oh, yeah, that's interesting. You know, so like it's kind of a mismatch there. But, yeah. But how, how do you align incentives correctly? When you bring in an external CEO, like first at like the Series A, you I mean, you can't exactly give them founder level equity, but you want to give them a reasonable amount of equity so they have skin in the game. And then again, at the Series B, like you kind of have the same problem. How do you align incentives? Yeah, well, you know, you can vest those that equity so that it takes time and they have to earn out. You can set you can set targets in place to kind of make sure that the company's going the way that you want in order for them to earn the equity that they, they get. But yeah, if you want someone really good, they're going to have to feel like they've got some skin in the game. So, you know, you want to give them the right amount of equity and it's worth it. You know, if you, if you really want to take a shot at being a huge company and going public someday, then, you know, you've got to get the right people in place. I mean, the reason I ask is I'm just like... I like the idea of, of the external CEO. I can imagine myself like in a situation someday where I would want an external CEO of a company that 
either I am a part of or that I'm running myself. And I can imagine this just being really hard to calibrate. And like, I can imagine it being something that's like crucial to the company. And also there's like, maybe not that much information out there about it. Yeah. Our search for our current CEO was a lot. I mean, I think we talked to probably 20 different CEOs and, you know, we looked for somebody who really leapt off the page. And, you know, your investors can be super helpful there mm. because they're often really plugged in right. to uh, the community of CEOs. So And incentives. Know, that's right. So you get and, and they can also kind of, yeah, they can kind of help you understand what the market is for a good CEO and, you know, make sure that, that the incentives are aligned with their background and skill level and so on. Mm. Okay, we're up against time. Let's wrap up with a totally unrelated question to external CEOs. How big of a problem for security is cryptocurrency-related attacks? Oh, yeah. So it's a completely different kind of security than what we do, I mean, for the most part, because mostly the kinds of machines that people compromise are desktop machines and cloud servers and stuff. But I think it is a very interesting attack. You know, people figured out a way to use hijacked resources to make some money. So, you know, the one, the part of it that interests me is if somebody can knock over a web server or an app server and turn it into a cryptocurrency mining thing or a, a ransomware thing or something. We haven't seen too many of those attacks, but it's certainly possible. Like that Equifax attack, instead of stealing that data, somebody could have easily knocked over their app server and turned it into a crypto coin mining farm or a ransomware kind of thing where they took Equifax hostage. So those kinds of things are pretty scary scenarios. Okay. Well, Jeff Williams, thank you for coming on the show. It's been really fun talking to you about security and business building. Thanks, Jeff. Appreciate the time. Wow. 